2: You're listening to the best of the Indo-Daily. Your chance to catch up on some of the most popular episodes of 2022.
3: Before we start, a word of warning. This podcast contains graphic accounts of murder. This is the story of a very average Irishman.
2: He was tall, lean, fit, go-ahead sort of a guy and certainly would have been seen from an outside point of view as a good catch.
3: A path paved out for him in Ireland's elite swimming circle. Frank McCann appeared to have it all. Esther thought she had found
1: the perfect man, the perfect father to the children that she wanted and she thought he was mad about her and so did we.
3: But this son, brother, husband, foster father and swimming coach was hiding a very dirty secret. One that would shock a nation when he did the unthinkable to hide it.
2: We now know that uh, Frank McCann himself took these uh, heinous abuses to an entirely new level simply to keep them from Knowing that he had, I believe, uh, molested and impregnated a 17 year old swimmer with special needs.
3: This is the story of a man who committed double murder and has, for almost 30 years, lived his life behind bars, leaving the loved ones of those he killed in a permanent state of loss, but also fear that this woman and baby killer might soon walk the streets of Ireland a free man. You know,
1: it really is a life sentence for all of us to live in fear for the rest of our lives, or for the rest
3: of his life anyways. This is the story of Frank McCann. The most important names in this podcast are Esther and Jessica McCann, who are 30 years dead this year. They were killed by a man who was supposed to protect them, husband and father Frank McCann. But there are other names that feature in this series, including George Gibney, Derry O'Rourke and Father Michael Cleary. In short, This is a story with so many layers, but at its very core are the tragic deaths of Esther and little baby Jessica. Over the next three episodes, I will take you back over the story of what happened with the help of several people, Marion and Esther Leonard, Esther McCann's sister and niece, Conor Fian, Irish independent reporter, Stephen O'Brien, political analyst, and Irv Muchnick, investigative reporter who is based in the States. We start off in conversation with Marion and Esther Leonard. Marion, can I ask you first of all about your your family um, and where Esther came in the order?
1: Well, we were born and reared in Tremor. Our big sister was 10 years older than us, Phyllis. She's a nun. Then came Pat, my brother, three years older than me. And then mom wanted a brother for Pat. So then I came along. <laughs> and then two years later, Esther came along. So needless to say, Esther was always in my life. Pat never got a brother. We lived a very happy life in Tremor, very safe life. Myself and herself were like harem scarems around the town where one of us was, the other was. Esther had a very... Angelic look from an early age, big brown eyes, smiley face, butter wouldn't melt. I had freckles, red hair. and looked like a brat. So I was blamed for everything, even though I may not have been my doing. But we were together always yeah. where one of us went, the other was. And my friends were her friends growing up and always and vice versa.
3: And so Esther, did she move to to Dublin um, for studies or when when did that
1: happen? I had moved to Dublin um, to the civil service and um, Esther came up to go to UCD. So she moved in with me and Billy, my husband, and stayed with us while she went through uni and intermittently over the years would have lived with us. When mum, my father had died and when my mother moved to Dublin, she bought a house for herself and Esther.
3: Can I ask you when Frank McCann came into Esther's life and that meant, uh, in turn, your life?
1: Esther was living with and dating a very nice chap called Paul. And Paul didn't have a close family life, even though we included him in ours, every bit of it. But he wanted to go to Australia and start again. There was a lot of talk about Esther going to. And in the long run, she just said to me, I can't, she said, I can't just leave you and the boys mm. and Esther. So a yeah. little less. So and mom. So she didn't go. But she was heartbroken. They'd been together for five years. They'd lived together. Esther saw her life with him. So she stayed and she saw him off. And we would a lot of tears and a lot of regrets. And then very quietly, um, Frank McCann, who was a mutual friend with one of Esther's friends, was on the scene, but quietly at first. They went to the cinema. He went to do's in the Shelburne with her as her escort. Very presentable, seemed quiet, very conservative by comparison to how inclusive we would have been or how demonstrative we would have been. So very reserved, non-drinker, non-smoker. And Esther loved her pint of Guinness from her student days. Very short time they were dating and um, Esther said he was just great fun, great fun out and sober, but great fun, great jokes, great laugh. And she fell for him
3: very quickly and he was introduced to all the family. Conor Fian, Irish independent journalist, has been following Frank's prison journey even tracking him as he walks the streets of Dublin now while currently on work experience. Connor, can you tell me a little bit about Frank McCann? Where is he from? What kind of man was he before prison?
2: Frank McCann was from Walkinstown in Dublin, and he uh, was from a family of. Coopers, who worked for Guinnesses from a long line of Coopers who made barrels for the, the brewery. His great-grandfather was a Cooper, and that trade was passed down through the family to his grandfather and his father and himself. And actually, Frank McCann is known to be the last known trained Cooper in Dublin. That's how he started his life, carrying on in Guinnesses, just like his father and grandfather and, and, and other relatives before him. And that also, it, it also led him to uh, to an interest in swimming, because naturally anybody who worked in Guinnesses had access to facilities that Guinnesses supplied, like they, they had a swimming pool. Uh, so Frank and his family would have availed of that. So that, that's where his interest in swimming came from. Eventually, he moved from the, the Walkinstown area up to around the, the Kimmage area and the, the Wainsford area of, of South Dublin, and, and then uh, eventually bought the house in uh, Butterfield Avenue. So, you know, there was no, no hint or any uh, signs that there was anything amiss. Frank didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he worked hard. Trained hard, set up his own business when when the coopering trade in Guinnesses uh, collapsed. He was innovative, and uh, he he just seemed to be somebody who was who was getting along in life. He was very high up in the in the swimming circles. Uh, he was a man with a name. He was a man with um, I suppose social standing, is what people would say at the time. You know, he was um, he was somebody who who was going places. He had his own business at that stage fitting out pubs and making furniture. So, you know, he was a man who, who could make good of himself in bad situations. He was, he was tall, lean, fit, go-ahead sort of a guy. And certainly, I suppose, w- w- would have been seen uh, f- from, from an outside point of view as a good catch. Well, Esther came to Dublin um, after she left school to study uh, psychology in UCD while she did engage with the course, it it didn't really, uh, it didn't excite her. And uh, she found herself interested in computers and computing. And look, computers were only really coming about at the time. They were there were they were only really coming onto the mainstream and into offices and into homes at that time. So she was uh, an early adapter in that regard. And she excelled at, at at um mastering computing and computers. And she ended up then in different jobs with um with accountancy firms and and um installing computers and helping with um Computer transition and she also uh, taught computers from her home to, to to women to to help them further themselves and, and and get jobs in the workplace It
3: tells you that this was a very clever lady:
2: Oh absolutely yeah to be able to see a future or to, to grasp onto something that she could see would take her her places in, in, in the world and, um, and and succeed at it as well.
3: Here is Marion Leonard again. Esther thought she had found the perfect
1: man, Mm -hmm. the perfect father to the children that she wanted, a family man with a nice family. You know, he lived with his mother and father. Uh, He had his brothers and his sister there. Very regular looking family. Um, And he just seemed to be what what was going to be a nice future for her and for him. And she thought he was mad about her and so did we.
3: You would all go out together because I've seen photographs where you are there with with um, Esther and Frank. And I think there's one where Frank even has his arm around you or, oh yeah, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. that you just look like such a close knit group of, mm-hmm. of people, uh, uh, you know, a ha- very yeah. happy, extended yeah. family. Yeah. So there was nothing to suggest at all. This man was thinking otherwise.
1: We knew nothing of another side of Frank. So we had no we had no. We had no doubts about him.
3: Can we talk then about when baby Jessica came into their life? Yes. um, Jeanette,
1: Frank's adopted sister, was pregnant when she was in school. Obviously unexpectedly and obviously unplanned. And things didn't go well for her at home. So Esther told Jeanette, move in with me. Now, I would have been in and out of the house. I actually didn't notice Jeanette was pregnant for basically nearly. She was nearly delivering the child before I noticed that she was pregnant. And um, Esther looked after Jeanette, brought her for all her health checks and her doctors and everything. And when Jessica was born or was going to be born, the plan was Esther would be with her for the birth, which she was. They didn't have anything formal in place other than through the social worker that they were fostering. But because it was in, within the family, it didn't have to be ratified by anybody. Yeah. But Esther did want Jessica adopted. And I did say to her, you don't want to be a glorified babysitter for this child. We are all falling in love with. And we did. So she was only a year and a half when she died. She had words at will and could tell us what to do and what she wanted. And, you know, took everything in, walked around the house with such a positive air about her. She was a very confident little girl. was gorgeous. When Esther died, the guards took a lot of information down from the hard drive of the computer, which had survived, and printed it out. And they gave it to me to go through bit by bit to see if there was any information that would help them with their investigation into Frank McCann. I did tell them when I saw the diary what I had found. And then they allowed me... All, take keep all of those papers everything that Esther had put together it was put together with the intention as you, you can read in it of her sharing her time and her thoughts on Jessica as she grew up with the intention of Jessica reading it with her she also was very sure that Jessica would always know she was adopted there was never going to be any secrets so that was part of her her thought waves of making sure Jessica knew how wanted she was from the beginning but also that she was part of her life.
3: And I can see you getting emotional, Marion, and understandably so. And uh, Esther, I can see you (laughs) have tears in your eyes now as well. Um, What do you remember from this period? You would have been very, very young, I would imagine.
0: Well,
1: yeah, I was only um, eight when um, Esther and Jessica died. And Esther and myself had a brilliant relationship she was like everything you could want in an aunt. She was so interesting. She was funny. She was beautiful. She was so talented. She was an artist, you know, and she'd have bits of, you know, art equipment and paints and everything just, you know, around the house. And her artwork was so beautiful. You know, yeah, she was a, a joy to be around, really.
3: So Connor. It's August 1992. Esther is becoming very, very concerned about the fact that the adoption process is taking a little bit too long. So what does Frank
2: decide to do? In July 1992, not long before the fire, Frank started to report gas leaks at the house. At one stage, people came out from the gas board and and they couldn't find any, any, any gas leak. But then... On July the twenty eighth, he reported another one, and when it was investigated, it was found that there was a massive gas leak in the hallway of the house, and that pipes could only have been separated using heat in order to create such a such a leak. Um, and then there was other incidents as well that um, that Esther's family tell us about how. Uh, Esther woke up uh, one August day, August the 14th, uh, to find the, an electric an electric blanket folded up on the bed, was on fire at the end of the bed, and she hadn't put it on the bed. And another occasion, the brakes on her car failed. Now, when you look at them now in the cold light of day, you can see that obviously there's a bit of a pattern emerging here. Gas, fires, and all of these things happening while Esther is with Jessica. The two of them were together on all of those occasions. So now we can look back and map it and say there's an obvious pattern here. But at the time, it wasn't really picked up upon.
3: Here is Marion Leonard again.
1: I was in Tremor. I'd gone down with little Esther and the two boys, saw Esther. Esther phoned me. I was only settling into the house. I had a call from her around eight o'clock and making sure it was there safely. And she said, I'm going to talk to Frank about this adoption tonight. It's not working right. There's something going on. I've made an appointment for Monday and she said, but I'm going to have it out with him tonight. And all I said to her, and my father-in-law heard me saying it because he said it back to me. Um, I said, look, I said, will you just wait till I come back? Leave it till I come back. Because if you get upset, I'm not there. And that was the last I heard from her. We got to bed that night and at about five o'clock in the morning, Billy's mum, my husband's mum, was on the landing. I could hear her crying and then she came in to me and she said, you have to talk to Billy on the phone. And I went in and sat on their bed and Billy told me what
0: had happened. Esther, aged 30, and 18-month-old Jessica died when fire swept through their home at Butterfield Avenue, Rathfarnham. Mrs McCann's body was found lying outside her bedroom. Firemen found Jessica still in her cot. They both died from inhaling carbon monoxide fumes. Esther,
1: this one, of course, woke up as soon as I moved because we were in the same bed. So I told her when we were sitting downstairs, my cousins all, word spreads in Tremor. So one of my cousins was a detective. He turned up and some of other cousins came along. And I sat in the sitting room in Tremor and told Esther what had happened with her sitting on my knee. And we Sat around for a while and just talked to people. And I just said, you know, I have to go and tell the boys. So, Esther, little Esther, came up with me. And I told James and Brian. And uh, we all just cuddled into the bed. That basically was it. It's, uh, there's then, then I suppose you get on with doing things. I actually have a block in my memory for a few hours there that I don't, even though people told me, my cousin told me that I told him that it was Frank. Um, And I had put two and two together in my head very quickly. Um, But I stayed around in Tremor till everything was settled. And then my cousin drove my car back with the kids
3: and kind of an investigation started from there. Stephen O'Brien, political analyst, was an Irish independent reporter from that period. Frank McCann
0: played the part of the absolute distraught father. He, at the time of the fire, he was in Blessington County, Wicklow, I'm guessing possibly 15, certainly 15 if not 20 miles away from Rathfarnham where the the family lived. And he was in uh, Blessington County, Wicklow where he ran a pub called The Cooperage and he arrived back. Uh, with the house in full blaze and the fire brigade in attendance and he uh, uh, collapsed in grief at the scene and and, and played the role of the distraught father.
3: For a while, Frank had everyone fooled.
0: It transpired. He had uh, deliberately set the fire and sped off at high speed to get to uh, Blessington to try and create an alibi for himself. This was not the first, but the fourth Attempt at least the fourth attempt that the authorities discovered and the investigating officers discovered that he had made on the lives of his wife and their 18-month-old, hoped-to-be-adopted daughter.
3: And my thanks to all who contributed to this episode and part two continues tomorrow.
2: Esther is going to be told about the fact that Frank has had this baby with a 17-year-old swimming student and Frank knows that his standing in society, his standing in the community, everything he had worked for in the swimming association is all going to come tumbling down around him. For whatever reason, Frank decided that the only way out of this was to make sure that Esther never found out. It seems drastic. It seems incredible that somebody would go to the lengths that Frank McCann did in order to try and hide a secret.
3: I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was produced and researched by myself and Tabitha Monahan, with assistance from Conor Fian. Recorded by Gavin Hennessy with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE and independent.ie. If you like the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow or leave us a review.